Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome back to the subcast, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by Thomas Fazzi, uh, a journalist, writer, translator, uh, somebody who you have probably read uh, on Unheard or through his Substack, uh, somebody who is uh, an award-winning uh, documentary uh, maker and author, uh, wrote a very um, insightful book uh, called The Battle for Europe, How an Elite Hijacked a Continent and How We Can Take It Back, as well as uh, the book Reclaiming the State and a new book coming out in early 2023 called The COVID Consensus. And I really wanted Thomas on the uh, subcast mainly to talk about what has been going on in Italy with the rise of Georgia Maloney and uh, Brothers of Italy and all of the turbulence that we've been seeing in the news. But as I think will become apparent during the discussion, Thomas is also incredibly insightful on issues such as what's happening to uh, the Eurozone, um, some of the uh, challenges within the European Union, particularly coming from from a left perspective. Uh, he's also written uh, about the zombie politics of the new Conservative Party uh, and is, uh, I think, spot on in his analysis of uh, where the Conservatives are with, with Liz Truss and where they are going in the, uh, in the months ahead. Um, so, Thomas, welcome to the subcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. So why don't we just begin with... Um, a bit about you. I mean, just give us your your story, your journey. How did you come to be writing uh, about politics and all of the issues that we're going to talk about? Right. Well, um, while I had my political baptism uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, through the uh, anti-globalization movement, uh, so I was very active in that. Um, and then I kind of... Uh, you know, drifted off to do other things for for a while, and uh, it was really the financial uh, crisis and the fallout from the financial crisis that kind of restoked my interest in uh, um, politics in general and economics in in particular. Um, and uh, you know, as the financial crisis morphed into uh, a you know the, the the euro crisis, I really started to uh, I realized that uh, you know. Uh, Few people really, you know, understood what was what was going on uh, at the time, especially on the left, and that's maybe because people on the left tend to uh, downplay the importance of uh, of studying economics, and I mean, you know, macroeconomics, and so that's why I think a lot of people were having a hard time figuring out what was what was going on, and so um, that's how the book, the Battle for Europe, um, came about, and then the um, and then you know, moving on from from that, I've been. You know, increasingly fascinated with the uh, uh, sort of the, the the role of the nation in contemporary politics and of national sovereignty, and uh, you know, I and so uh, together with uh, the economist Bill Mitchell, we started looking at that subject uh, beginning in sort of 2015, 2016, in in particular, uh, sort of at the you know at the right at the time of the so-called uh, you know um, 
popular populist uprising uh, in the West with Brexit, Trump, and uh, various other uh, phenomena of this kind. And uh, and so we uh, we started looking at the at that issue of the issue of what what some are calling resurgence national resurgent nationalism uh, from a you know what many people saw as a, as a negative development, especially from a left perspective. Well, we kind of turned that around and actually uh you know try to explain through that book uh reclaiming the state uh how in fact these this growing you know what what some were terming nationalism was in fact just a growing demand for uh you know collective control over their lives and uh that from left you know as leftists you know we didn't see the notion of national sovereignty as something uh negative in itself but in fact you know as the fun you know as some of the foundational uh pillar of democracy and uh, especially you know, popular democracy, um, and then you know I've just you know start continued looking at, uh, analyzing especially the you know the European integration issue you know how it's and the problems uh, of the European Union and how they've you know they've 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 kept changing but have remained you know throughout the uh, uh, the uh, the global pandemic and how that they continue to affect the continent now uh, with the energy crisis and the, and the Ukraine war. Uh, so kind of the, these are my main uh, areas of, uh, of interest. But of course, living in Italy, I, uh, I do write a lot about uh, about Italian politics and especially, you know, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the the interaction between uh, Italy and the, the European Union and how the overall architecture influences um, Italian um, politics and Italian democracy. So, you, so you've been living through, you know, the technocratic governments during the financial crisis, the rise of Five Star, the rise of Salvini, uh, now the rise of Giorgio Maloney, Brothers of Italy. You've essentially been in the in the front row seat watching all of that unfold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it all, and uh, I've been, um, yeah, I've been a, a keen uh, commentator and analyst of what's been happening in, in Italy over the past uh, uh, ten years. And you know, if anyone who was looking for anyone who was looking close enough, uh, none of what's happening right now in Italy is uh, surprising in in the least. In fact, it was all, you know, very easily, uh, easily predictable. And, uh, you know, I, I, I anticipated many of these developments, uh, you know, quite some time ago. But again, none of this was uh, was rocket science. And um, so uh, but but again, I think I'm 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 in a good position to uh, sort of uh, maybe help people understand what's going on uh, in Italy and what the likely developments are, uh, we can expect. Okay, so let, let's 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 just talk about that because you know historically, you know, often people have said, well, you know, Italy is Italy. It's it's a political system characterized by, you know, almost extreme amounts of volatility, continual government collapse, and um, you know, a restless, emotional, turbulent politics. But over the last ten years, things seem to have reached a, a new high, and if we you know, I'm not an expert in Italian politics. If we were to read the sort of dominant narrative of what's happening in Italy, Italy is essentially swinging to the right with a sort of pseudo-fascist leader under Maloney, whose party can be traced back to Mussolini. And this is part of a sort of global rightward turn. I mean, what what what's your sort of take as to how did we get here? I mean, how did we get here to the point that Maloney is now, you know, has, has won the election essentially, and Italy now looks 
like it looks. I mean, just talk us through your your take on this. What what has happened in Italy? Well, I think Italian um, Italian voters for a very long time now um, have been, you know, through the ballot box have been sending out a very clear message. They want a um, they want a change from the status quo, and by the status quo, I mean the kind of uh, two decades long stagnation that uh, Italy, uh, that the Italian economy has been in, uh, which has turned into a night route, an, out, an outright kind of social and economic crisis over the past ten years, so post uh, post Euro crisis, uh, um, which has resulted in you know. A, a, you know pretty significant fall in living standards for a lot of people as a result of the EU imposed austerity policies which have entailed cuts to uh, cuts to welfare and you know rising taxes and kind of the usual uh, <laughs> austerity um, packages and um, and and so come 20, 2018 uh, you know that's when after pretty much you know almost a uh, 10 years of uh, EU enforced austerity Italian voters uh, you know uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, as loudly as they could, demanded change, and that's why they voted in mass for the Five Star Movement, uh, which back then was still a populist uh, party, um, so to speak, uh, and uh, also uh, gave a you know decent amount of votes to the to Salvini's Lega, uh, which was also a, a sort of more right leaning uh, populist party. Um, and both parties had, uh, they didn't have very much in common, but they had one thing in common, uh, which was, um, at least, you know, in, 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 in their rhetoric in words, um, a certain, uh, hostility, uh, towards the European Union and the Euro, uh, both parties that had spoken out very vocally, uh, on the very damaging effects that the Euro had had on, on, on Italy, uh, which are, you know, irrefutable. And uh, so, you know, uh, I think it's pretty easy to see that vote as a vote uh, you know, against the kind of EU-imposed uh, um, uh, austerity status quo. That's, uh, that, that was pretty clear. And, uh, you know, w- what happened uh, to that? You know, what happened to, you know, this, this huge demand for change? Well, it was thwarted pretty much uh, immediately by the European Union uh, itself. Uh, so, you know, it's the, through various mechanisms of enforcement that the EU ha- has, is, you know, first and foremost by virtue of the fact that, you know, it controls the issuance of the currency, uh, which is the basis of any form of economic policy, it essentially, you know, uh, resorted to various tools of financial blackmail to essentially, you know, uh, cause that government, that government, uh, you know, that the, the Liga Five Star um, Alliance government to collapse uh, uh, just just over uh, actually less than a year after it was formed, and um, that was so that was the end of that, you know, and so then you get a far, you know, after that we've had we we saw. You know, extraordinary events happen. We sort of find, you know, what was this, pop, you know, populist party with massive support, the Five Star Movement, shift uh, or basically pivot. You know, do a three hundred sixty degree pivot. You know, towards the establishment and align itself first with the Democratic Party, the Partito Democratico, uh, which is the embodiment of the uh, of establishment politics of pro EU uh, establishment politics. Um, and then uh, actually endorsing uh, the Mario Draghi government, you know, Draghi being what just a year, you know, 
one or two years before would have been considered, you know, the embodiment of uh, of, of the enemy, you know, from from the five stars five stars perspective. Uh, so you know, and and so that was an incredible pivot, and that caused clearly, you know, support for the five star to collapse. Uh, you know, the, by the same token, you know, by the same token, Salvini's Lega also endorsed the uh, the Draghi government. Uh, so you had so so what happened is that you know these two parties that had get, garnered millions of votes, you know. Uh, promising change actually ended up becoming, uh, you know, uh, absorbed by the establishment themselves. Um, so when you look at the kind of Italian panorama at this point, uh, once the Draghi government is, for, is formed, uh, there's only one party, um, effectively, in any, only one major party that's uh, in opposition. That's not that's not inside the Draghi government, and that's uh, Meloni's Brothers of Italy. Um, so, and so what we've had over the past, uh, year is that, you know, which has seen Maloney's, uh, consensus really explode is, uh, is, is, this is, this is the situation. And this, I think, you know, accounts for a large part of, uh, of, uh, of Maloney's, uh, you know, incredible, um, uh, incredibly fast rise in um, in consensus. Uh, you know, it passed from what just over four percent in twenty eighteen to uh, you know twenty twenty seven percent in um, in the recent elections. So that's a huge, huge growth in um, in votes, and I think largely um, attributable to the fact that you know it's um, it was the only party not supporting Draghi. I mean, again. One one doesn't have to, you know, get uh, get muddled in excessively complex sociological explanations for what's going on here. Once again, those who still think that voting, you know, <laughs> is worth is worth it, and that's that's a huge, it's another huge aspect of this election, uh, the, the very low turnout. But those few people, those those people that still believe that voting uh, is is you know, has has some meaning, uh, once again. Voted for the only party that you know uh, was not supporting the uh, the status quo um, throughout the, throughout recent years. So once again, we see people what what they're demanding is uh, a change from the status quo, and they see you know the best way to do that to vote you know the only party that hasn't been explicitly supporting uh, at least the establishment and the status quo in uh, in recent years. So once again, it's just, so once again, it's a it's it's a demand for it's a demand for change. Um, that said, I wouldn't overemphasize the shift to the right uh, in Italy, which is something we've read a lot about in you know in, in, uh, since the elections. Um, uh, in fact, I think it's important. Uh, you know, if we look, if we just look at percentages, it's easy to get that impression. But I think we've got to look at overall numbers. And if we look at overall numbers, uh, we see that um, the uh, the overall number of votes that the center right coalition got, uh, and that's Brothers of Italy plus uh, Salvini's Lega plus Berlusconi's Forza Italia, the overall numbers of votes that the, that that coalition got this time round, which which was uh, around twelve million votes. Is pretty much the same number of votes they got um, uh, at, the, at the last elections in 2018. Uh, so what does that tell us? Uh, that we are not witnessing a growing consensus uh, for you know we're not seeing a big shift in votes from, uh, for example, the five star towards uh, the right, uh, let alone from the left to the right. Um, but we are seeing more you know basically a reshuffling of votes within. The, uh, within the center right co- coalition, uh, and even there, you know, we shouldn't 
overemphasize the ideological aspect. It's it's not that you know people are now you know people have shifted from uh, a more moderate party like Forza Italia to Maloney for strictly ideological uh, reasons. Uh, as I said, it's it's mainly got to do with the fact that both Forza Italia and um, Liga are now seen as you know too close to the uh, too close to the establishment, uh, and so it's those centre right voters that are now trying to send a message uh, to the to their own coalition uh, first and foremost. Can I ask a question just about ideology? Um, because I, I I I can see the the argument that essentially Maloney filled this demand for a for a more radical alternative, and you know I, it kind of reminds me in a way of the of what happened in British politics in the 2010s, and we'll come back to that. But Maloney is clearly quite different from Salvini and from centre-right politicians, is she not? I mean, ideologically, is she not in a different space from other figures on the right? Um, from She's definitely quite different from uh, from Berlusconi in many respects. I, she's not that different from Salvini. I mean, much of the... Uh, much of the uh, the rhetoric and uh, is is not that different from uh, from Salvini. It's a bit more it's a bit more refined. I mean, Salvini was more uh, was more of a uh, of a kind of gut instinct politician. You know, he just kind of you know he was very good at sniffing where you know what 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 what, uh, what, what you know where where people were pivoting and uh, was very good at capturing people's sentiments. And so, uh, but um, but I mean, if you look at you know what are some of the main um, sort of proposals? Uh, I mean, some of the main issues that Maloney has taken up. Uh, can, so you know, issues are uh, um, you know re- religion. You know, questions of uh, religious identity, national identity, immigration. Uh, these are issues that she's uh, uh, you know <clears throat> um, talked about a lot, and they're not that. They're not, that's not that different from. Uh, from what you know, um, from what Salvini um, was was known for talking about. Uh, so in in so in kind of in cultural terms, they're not they're not that different than uh, Maloney and Salvini. Uh, I mean, at least from my point of view. I mean, yes, Salvi- Maloney has this more uh, you know clearly it's an overtly uh, you know post fascist if we want to call it that party. Uh, you know, it has clear, uh, you know, roots in that tradition, um, unlike, uh, unlike the Liga, uh, even though a lot of people in the Liga, you know, uh, also uh, look back to, you know, probably consider their roots to be, well, not their roots, but at least, you know, uh, they, they definitely feel um, closer to that kind of right-wing tradition than, than they would to a left-wing tradition. So, um so not very different in from from a cultural perspective, uh, but actually quite different in terms of um, of uh, from an economic perspective. Uh, in terms of economic values, uh, the Liga, is, you know, ha- had a kind of you know slightly more you know Keynesian interventionist uh, uh, approach to uh, to economic policy, um, unlike you know. Maloney, which is very much kind of small state, uh, you know, has a much more pro pro market small state uh, Hayekian <laughs> approach to. Uh, well, she likes Liz Truss. <laughs> of course, that makes sense, uh, and it, they're also quite different in terms of uh, you know the, the, their stance vis a vis the the European Union. Um, in a sense, that Salvini, you know, up until twenty eighteen, had taken you know quite a radical stance. 
uh, in opposition to the euro and to the European Union. Uh, you know, just a few years before the 2018 elections, Salvini was uh, openly uh, calling for Italy's exit, so for Italy's exit from the European Union. Maloney, you know, she flirted with that, you know, rather a bit, but she's been, uh, she's been, you know, normalizing her uh, her politics surrounding the European Union and the Euro for quite some time now, and in fact now her positions on the issue, uh, you know, um, aren't you know aren't very radical at all. Uh, in fact, you know, she's uh, on all um, on all the main issues of the day. Uh, Maloney's positions are actually quite uh, in line with the uh, with the status quo with the establishment. So whether it's uh, and this is also, um, you know, so if you look, for example, at the question of the Ukraine war and uh, you know, the, uh, you know sending weapons to Ukraine, uh, Maloney has supported that. Um, Salvini has been you know slightly more critical uh of that of that approach especially in terms of the you know the, the fallout in the form of the uh the energy crisis uh, uh maloney has been completely steadfast in her support for uh for ukraine for nato she's you know um often reaffirmed uh, you know how much she believes in the euro atlantic uh, alliance uh, um and she's also pledged her allegiance to um to the European Union um, on numerous occasions in, in recent years. Uh, now, you know, of course, that could be um, that could be seen as just an attempt to uh, you know clean up her image uh, in the you know in, in the run up for for the elections. But I think there's something deeper going on there. Um, I think the experience of the uh, 2018 elections has inevitably led also to a kind of uh, you know normalization or I would say domestication of uh, populist politics in Italy where you know uh, the new populist kid on the block Maloney uh, has learned the lesson of 2018 very well and has kind of internalized it like she, she knows very well that it's uh, going up against the European Union is a uh, is a losing battle uh, and so, you know, she saw what happened to the Five Star and the Liga when they tried to do that. They were pummeled into uh, submission uh, over the course of just a few months. And she knows very well that, that you know, the same thing is bound to happen to, uh, to her government. Uh, if she dares to challenge the kind of macroeconomic framework of the European Union. Um, so in a way, it's kind of a, uh, I think it's, um, I think it was... Um, Philip Cunliffe in, in, in Unheard, or maybe Peter Ramsey, I'm not sure, they're both good friends of mine, but uh, one of them two wrote a really interesting article in Unheard recently, saying how Maloney actually actually signals the rise of a new form of Euro-populism. So this isn't, this is not, it's not an anti-Euro-populism anymore, it's a Euro-populism that might actually end up re-legitimizing uh, the European Union, which won't, you know, which won't be associated just with uh, you know, drab grey technocrats anymore, but might actually end up being uh, kind of reboosted by this new uh, generation of uh, you know so-called populist politicians that don't uh, in fact openly challenge the European Union, uh, but have in fact completely accepted and internalized uh, its existence its existence as a uh, you know as as a fact of life. Uh, so I think you know it, in terms of whether you know have have people uh, have. Is this vote a signal of a radicalization in people's votes? Well, that's that's hard to that's hard to argue when you consider 
that in many ways Maloney is less radical and less of a populist than Salvini um, than Salvini used to be. Uh, so in fact, you know, you could also see it as a kind of uh, renormalization of Italian politics, and I think that also um, is uh, to a certain extent confirmed by the fact that Maloney has uh, intercepted uh, hardly any of the outgoing five-star movement votes. Uh, I think that's also really, um, uh, really interesting. Uh, so clearly, you know, all, you know, those millions of voters that, you know, chose the five-star movement uh, as, as a, you know, to demand change, uh, to demand a radical alternative to the status quo, do not view Maloney as that alternative. They don't view Maloney as the new five-star movement. And in fact, uh, uh, the uh, more or less six million votes that the five-star movement lost uh, compared to 2018 didn't, didn't really go anywhere. Uh, those six million votes are, you know, are more or less uh, the, same, you know, the same number of people that stayed at home. So, so in essence, the kind of the, the sort of the real radicals if you like the ones that want to sort of challenge the status quo um they haven't gone over to maloney they've basically gone into apathy they've given up on politics altogether is that is that right exactly exactly i think that's a huge part of what the what the recent elections are telling us absolutely well you saw something very similar in britain you know ahead of the brexit referendum one of the things that very few people picked up on and the reason why i think um the, the probability of Brexit was downplayed was because many typically working class non-graduate voters had basically been leaving the political system from as early as 97, really. Um, the numbers basically grew during the new Labour years. And by the time you entered the early 2010s, you really had a large number of mainly working class Eurosceptic voters who were certainly not down with David Cameron, might have been tempted by Nigel Farage, but actually quite a few of them just stayed at home anyway. And then when that referendum came around, suddenly they flooded back into the political system to sort of grab, you know, this one opportunity they they saw uh, to to try and change the system. And and of course the rest the rest is history. But but in Italy, you write the following: you say Italian democracy has now become so constrained, it no longer matters who wins the election. And just talk to us a bit about that. What do you mean by uh, democracy becoming so constrained, it doesn't even matter who's going to win the next election in Italy? Right, yes. Uh, I think uh, people often, uh, especially uh, people that live in um, non-Euro uh, countries or in uh, countries in the euro that are better off than than Italy have a hard time uh, realizing just the extent to which euro membership uh, constrains uh, national politics and national uh, uh, democracy in especially the uh, kind of weaker, more fragile countries of the uh, of the eurozone, the so-called countries of the periphery. And I think uh, you know Italy has always been the kind you know, the the, the uh, canary in the mine in this sense that it's always kind of a, uh, been an extreme example, I think, uh, of their selling side with uh, Greece, of course. Um, um, but I think, yes, so we spoke of the 20, 2018 elections. And so what happens in 2018? You see this, uh, uh, you know, this you know, populist alliance form between these two parties that had, you know, 
campaigned against the status quo and uh, um, in fact had a number of flagship proposals uh, which were you know mainly uh, you know tax cuts and pension reform uh, as far as the league was concerned and uh, you know um, um, an income support scheme as far as far as the five star was movement was concerned and um you know of course to do that they uh they they needed to uh, raise the deficit a bit you know the fiscal deficit and uh, that immediately put them on a collision course with the european commission and the um and, and the ecb um and in fact uh what you know? What resulted was a uh, well, and a bit of arm wrestling that went on for 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 several um, months. In fact, uh, concerning a tiny increase of like I don't know, zero point three, zero point four percent in in the deficit. You know, something that wouldn't even uh, cause a blip on radar screens in you know in so you know quote unquote normal countries that issue their own currency you know there, there wouldn't be a, na- a a huge national debate over uh you know raising the deficit of 0.3 or 0.4% instead in the euro context that becomes it though that became a huge deal uh, and in fact the european commission got its way in the end and the, the government uh, you know was forced to was forced to accept that um uh it couldn't raise the deficit and uh you know this uh this this can happen because um because Italy and other euro countries don't have, don't issue their currency anymore. I mean, the, the issuance of the currency, the having the monopoly over the currency, is really the basic pillar of economic sovereignty. Uh, if you don't, you know, that's that's any other every other form of economic policy uh, descends from that. I mean, you know, all if we look at the major uh, forms of economic policy, that's uh, kind of uh, exchange rate policy, uh, monetary policy. Um, and uh, fiscal policy, budgetary, budgetary policy. Um, these are kind of the three main pillars of economic policy. Uh, Euro countries uh, don't control any of those uh, anymore. Yes, formally they they have fiscal sovereignty, but that that in itself is dependent on monetary sovereignty, as as we've learned quite clearly in uh, in, in recent years. Unless you have uh, central bank support, you're not free to decide uh, what fiscal policies you want to pursue. And so um, I think. Um, what we've seen is really what uh, the British economist Wing Godley uh, very you know, presciently warned about uh, back in 1992 when even the UK was debating whether to enter the euro or not. And I think he wrote one of the best articles ever written about the euro in the London Review of Books, uh, where he basically explained, look, if you, uh, if you lose or if you give up the ability to issue your own currency, uh, you essentially um, uh, become a colony. In a sense that you become controlled by whoever issues the currency. Uh, in in our case, the the European Central Bank, and I think you know, uh, you know, the events of the past ten years in particular have made that abundantly clear. Uh, you know, and it's not just it wasn't you know wasn't just a case of what happened in the twenty eighteen you know following the twenty eighteen elections. Uh, you know, we know that in twenty eleven the ECB essentially conspired to uh, force Berlusconi to resign by almost engineering a financial crisis by deliberately uh, deliberately allowing uh, interest rates to rise, uh, thus precipitating a financial crisis in Italy, forcing Berlusconi to resign and ushering in the technocrat Mario Monti, uh, you know, who was a uh, who had been a, an EU commissioner um, in the past. And, uh, you know, we saw the same thing happen in Greece when uh, 
the Greeks, uh, you know, dare to elect a government that, uh, you know, um, proposed to overturn the uh, EU-imposed austerity policies. Uh, and, you know, we thought when Draghi, as the president of the ECB, doing something, as far as I know, completely unprecedented in history, you know, actually uh, shutting down the banking system of that country in order to force the government to uh, to force the you know left wing uh, Cyprus led government to um, to uh, you know to heal, uh, which is exactly what happened. Uh, I don't know of any other other case where a central bank has deliberately crashed a country's banking system to force that co- that government to go along with the policies the central bank wants that country to go along with. Uh, so you know, there's a lot of talk of uh, you know independent central banks, and yes, you know the UK formally has an independent central bank, and people say, oh well, what's the difference with the ECB? Uh, aren't all central banks independent? Uh, well, you know, formally yes, but in fact. Uh, as we've seen these days too, uh, in every normal country, the central bank works hand in hand with the government and would never dare to take explicit actions in order to uh, to kind of uh, uh, thwart, thwart, you know, the, the government's uh, the government's policies or, or economic projects. Uh, that would be unthinkable in you know in in, in normal currency issue, issuing nations. Uh, instead, that's what regularly happens in in the eurozone. Um, and so, you know, what that means is that for a country like Italy, uh, in particular, uh, is that you know whoever you elect, uh, government, you know, whoever gets into power really has no choice but to go, but to just follow the EU's diktats, uh, because you know. The the, the, the the government lacks you know the eco, the basic economic tools uh, of economic policy that are necessary to uh, you know to autonomously pursue uh, an economic agenda. Yeah, I was going to say I think that's also incredibly difficult for voters who are also in um, an economy, a nation state that has clearly not been benefiting as much as other member states from that um, monetary union. I mean, if I, you know, look at the Italian economy over the last 20 years, and I remember talking about this with Ashoka Modi, whose book, um, The Euro Tragedy, was was very influential um, on, on my thinking uh, um, about Britain's relationship with Europe and obviously what might have been had Tony Blair's push for Euro membership succeeded and had Gordon Brown not not stop that um, in the early 2000s. But, but you know, Ashoka's argument essentially was that the economic divergence between North and South is really going to really accelerate. Um, and, you know, if you look at how the Italian economy has been transformed over the last 20 years, I mean, living standards in, in Italy today, in parts of Italy, are essentially where they were in, in 1999. And the economy has been I would argue, hollowed out to become even more dependent upon hospitality, you know, tourism and so on, and, and is much less dynamic and productive as arguably it could have been. And I, I, I think actually many British voters were aware of that. I really do think that what they were witnessing in Southern Europe with uh, the high you know, youth unemployment rates, the stagnant economies, the, the Eurozone crisis, I think was actually very influential in their thinking. And we, when we in Britain have talked about the Brexit debate, I don't think we've actually given sufficient attention to what political scientists would call the benchmark uh, aspect of that debate, that 
that voters across the EU will always benchmark themselves against other members of the EU and that for British voters, and I think this stands today, even they will continuously benchmark themselves against the Italians, against the Spanish, against the Portuguese, against the Greeks. And for much of the last 20 years, that comparison just did not look particularly uh, positive for many voters. It just didn't look like it was a monetary union that was working, that was dynamic. And most important of all, and you've, you've pointed to this, it didn't really look like it was democratic. And it didn't look like it was seriously addressing the democratic deficit that is clearly at the heart of the European Union and, and EU institutions. Uh, and so when the when the Eurozone crisis erupted, I think the sense among many voters here in Britain was that not only are they kind of having to pay for that crisis through accepting very high levels of inward migration from southern Italy, uh, sorry, from southern Europe and, and Spain and Greece and so on, but they were also increasingly becoming tied to an organisation that didn't really look like it was uh, going to be successful and prosperous in the years and decades ahead. And that, in turn, I think, raises a really interesting benchmark comparison now for the future, which is, you know, this, again, is going against much of the, the dominant narrative. But but what if Brexit Britain actually works out? What if actually 5, 10, 15 years, 20 years from now, actually the British economy, it might not seem plausible today, given the energy crisis and everything else. But what if Brexit Britain actually does outperform EU member states like Italy, what will that do to the public debate around the EU going forward? Right, yes. Well, that's that's really interesting to me. I think, um, I think, I think you're right. I think the, uh, um, the, the lingering uh, sort of the, the after effects of the euro crisis uh, probably did influence the Brexit vote to, uh, oops, sorry, to, uh, to some extent. I, and I think... It's important for people to realize, uh, for, for you know, especially I would say for British people to realize um, just how they are constantly reaping the benefits of not having joined the euro uh, 20 years ago. Um, so even if we look at um, the more recent events, um, you know, <clears throat> the British government, uh, for all its, you know, for all its faults and uh I'm definitely no fan of uh, of, of Liz Truss, but I mean, if we if we sum the uh, the kind of uh, um, energy crisis relief measures put in place by uh, Johnson and uh, the the more recent uh, energy price freeze by by Liz Truss, I mean, you've got uh, basically an economic uh, you know uh, emergency you know crisis relief package, call it what you want, uh, which is well well over two hundred um, billion pounds in in total. That, you know, Quite a bit more than that, I think. Uh, when you sum up, when you sum all the all the proposals, um, now more can and should be done. But Britain can do that. Britain can decide overnight to um, to uh, to put aside sixty billion pounds um, to lower um, energy bills uh, for one reason, you know, because it has um, has monetary sovereignty. You know, it can, you know, that it's UK is basically going to print that money. I mean, you know, they can try to uh, cover that up with, uh, you know, all sorts of accounting uh, schemes. But, you know, de facto, the, the, the Bank of England is going to 
pay for that by printing money. And that, you know, from my perspective as an economist, that's absolutely uh, fine. It's not a problem at all. In fact, it's something that's going to, you know, uh, help uh, households and businesses uh, uh, be uh, at least partially cushioned from the effects of the um, energy crisis. Uh, And that's something that, you know, the government just, you know, woke up one day and said, okay, we're going to spend 60 billion pounds. And uh, yeah, done. That's not how it works in a Euro country. Uh, you know, in, in Italy, we could only dream of, uh, you know, putting, you know, of, of, of spending 60 billion euros to help households and businesses um, uh, weather the energy crisis uh, because, you know, that depends on the goodwill of the ECB. It's not a decision we can take autonomously uh, like, the, like the British government can. Um, and in fact, as far as of today, the British government has put aside hasn't put aside pretty much you know uh, a single euro to help uh, businesses and families uh, um, you know uh, weather the situation. Uh, and now now there's you know there's you know and it's it's if it wanted to spend, uh, but you know Draghi isn't even proposing to uh, to to expand the deficit. But if it wanted to, it would have to engage in endless negotiations with the European Commission and the ECB, and with no guarantee that uh, it would uh, it would get what it wants in the end. Uh, so so again, I mean, this is I think even constrained democracy is maybe too kind a term. I mean, how is this a democracy in any meaningful sense of the word? I think, you know, uh, Colin Crouch's uh, notion of post-democracy, uh, you know, is much more uh, is much more apt in uh, in this case. I mean, there's there's almost zero, um, you know, uh, democratic uh, de- democratic freedom for a country like uh, for a country like Italy. Um, and so it's, I think it's important to realize just how wise the choice not to enter the euro 20 years ago uh was and in terms of looking ahead i think the um uh the principle of brexit uh you know what motivated i think a lot of people to vote for brexit um which was the idea that you know uh, a country's success a country's development should be predicated on on its own strength uh that kind of you know that, okay Countries should, you know, pull themselves up through, you know, <laughs> uh, by their bootstrap and uh, and find their own uh, development model. They shouldn't just latch on to, you know, a, a kind of a continental-wide superstructure like the European Union and just hope to go along with that, you know. And uh, and and, it, and I think, you know, we've I think that 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 notion of uh, of just you know piggybacking other other you know development models that have been thought out by by other people such as the technocrats in Brussels i think you know that model has hasn't proven very beneficial for the uk for the uk either which is of course one of the reasons for the brexit vote in the first place um and so i think that that notion where increasingly countries are going to have to um sort of you know uh, navigate their own way through what are going to be very turbulent uh, years and that in what is a turbulent situation strength does not come from you know from 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 strengths does not come in numbers you know this is a, a, you know something we've heard so long over the, over the past few years oh the european union uh, strengthens us because you know together we're stronger well i think you know the, the the recurring crises of the european union show that the opposite is true in fact you know when you have this kind of uh, you know uh, uh, gargantuan organization which is constantly trying to uh, mediate between almost 30 members the end result is that it gets it, it never gets anything done 
um, you know, I think that we're seeing that again play out uh, in the energy crisis. Uh, nothing ever gets done. Meanwhile, the country's, ab- ab- country's ability, uh, the ability of individual countries to find their own solutions or to rely on, you know, their own economic uh, policies to solve crises uh, has been taken away from them. So on the one hand, you've got countries that are deprived of basic economic tools to uh, uh, respond to crises. And then on the other hand, you've transferred these powers to this massive supranational organization that doesn't really compensate for what individual countries have lost uh, in any meaningful manner. Uh, so, you know, again, uh, one could argue that, okay, Italy has lost the ability to issue uh, liras, but now you have the European Commission uh, or the European Central Bank that is help, you know, that will, uh, uh, that, that, that will solve the crisis. Um, and, but that's, that's not what's happening. You know, we've seen for weeks, uh, countries now, uh, EU countries have been, you know, discussing what to do uh, with the energy crisis. Should they do, a, you know, a, a Russian-only price gap? Should it be a price gap on all gas imports? Should it be, you know, should something else be done? How much should we spend? Should there be an EU-wide fund? You know, we, we, now we can expect weeks, if not months, of discussion over whether, you know, uh, we, we should have an EU uh, energy crisis fund or not. By then, you know, uh, tens of thousands of Italian businesses will already have gone bust. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, to conclude, I think that, you know, the, the principle, I mean, Brexit um, was predicated on the principle that, you know, countries ultimately uh, have to rely on themselves. And I think that will be that will become increasingly uh, true in, in in the coming years. Country, you know, the, those countries that will fare better, I think, are the countries that will have the greatest uh, kind of economic autonomy. Countries that ha- are deprived of, of their economic autonomy uh, aren't going to be saved by being part of the European Union. In fact, that's going to be, I think, you know, the main reason um, for their, you know, uh, growing loss of uh, competitiveness. And uh, I think that's going to become very clear, I think, in, 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 in the coming year, but maybe not, you know, not that far from now. I think even already in the winter, you know, we're going to see, you know, uh, how this plays out. We're going to see once again, the devastating effects of being part of such a dysfunctional uh, system. Uh, we are going to see, we're already seeing it. We're going to see the only country which can be considered partially sovereign, which is Germany, uh, that is part of the euro, uh, you know, spending what it, uh, what's necessary to uh, cushion the effect of the crisis. Uh, and um, other countries such as Italy and, and, and other periphery countries that can't afford uh, to, uh, you know, spend that much without an explicit support of the European Central Bank, which uh, isn't on the horizon uh, at all, um, becoming increasingly, uh, uh, you know, crippled by, by the situation. And so what, what are we going to see in the coming weeks and months? Even more divergence. So this divergent path that has been uh, happening ever since the euro crisis is now going to widen. Uh, is now going to widen even more, and Germany Germany knows that very well. I think that's one of the reasons why it's opposing uh, an EU wide fund. Uh, it knows that uh, you know the the, the 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 architecture of the euro is a way for the hegemonic countries, Germany first and foremost, to gain a competitive advantage uh, over weaker countries such as um, such as Italy. And I think it's going to, um, you know, exploit that in, uh, in every way uh, it can to uh, come on top of other countries uh, through the energy crisis. And so, so looking ahead in Italy, if I'm, if I'm you know, listening to you and reflecting on, on your arguments, it, it sounds to me as though you are 
instinctively sceptical that the Maloney government will basically be able to bring about any radical departure from what we might call the status quo, that basically Maloney will probably be um, will be uh, uh, tamed, uh, will, will, will go along with, uh, with the status quo, will not be able to meaningfully push Italy in a in a different direction. So I guess, I guess, you know, if, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, and if I'm sort of re- maybe reflecting on myself, where does that take Italy in the years ahead? Because, you know, I accept your arguments. I, I, I see, I see the, the obvious tension that lies at the heart of Italy. Um, but, but I don't, but I don't yet see a huge public clamor for let's leave the European Union, right? I mean, at the, the recent election, I think um, the, the, the explicitly pro-exit party, you know, was, was, was barely visible at all, even in, you know, France as well. We've seen, um, we've seen Marine Le Pen and, and, and other parties essentially accommodate themselves to, to the EU. So, so, so what's the next phase looking ahead here? Where does this anger and frustration take us politically well that's the million uh, million euro question um yes i mean it's it's you know the framework i've used to analyze uh, the kind of uh, the the the, um, the italian politics over the past 10 years is that of the the cycle of the external constraint and so you have this situation where um you know Someone gets into government, um, tries to uh, tries to do something, uh, tries to deal with what is a pretty bad social and economic situation. Uh, realizes it doesn't have the tools to uh, to to do much. Uh, at that point, a technocrat gets called in to do what parties don't want to uh, be seen as uh, being responsible for. Uh, so they call a technocrat in to do the, the dirty work, and um, you know that. That lasts for a while, and then as new elections approach, parties try to re-legitimize themselves once again in the eyes of the voters. So they'll maybe start, you know, uh, taking slightly more uh, radical positions. They may they'll maybe start attacking the technocrat they supported until the day before. This is exactly what we saw in the the recent elections. Uh, you know, from, from coming from all parties. Uh, you know, everyone took you know everyone distanced themselves from uh, Draghi, uh, including the you know, of course the Five Star Movement, which you know tried to refashion itself as a you know neo-populist party which was kind of surreal considering you know what they'd supported until a few weeks before the um for the elections um anyway you know that gets uh, a sort of a new quote-unquote political government in um, in place but you know then again uh the contradictions that uh of the euro uh, inevitably reemerge and so a new cycle uh, begins and i think you know uh and i think what's clear is that these cycles are getting shorter uh and shorter um and so uh what happens when you know what ha- what happens if meloni uh you know exactly uh, ends up uh in the same situation as the 2018 Lega Five Star government ended up in, um, that you know, you could call a new technocrat in, um, which is you know Draghi's uh, in the wings waiting, uh, I think, to uh, to uh, be um, sort of uh, uh, 
uh, trucked into government once once again. Uh, that's you know a new a new technocratic government uh, in the face of uh, a financial crisis uh, or some form of external shock is uh, a, you know very um, um, very real possibility. But of course, you know well how you know this would mean the definitive, I think, collapse of you know democratic um, accountability. Um, I think, and uh, what would so what would that mean in terms of uh, of the political response of uh, of people? That's uh, I don't know. That's uh, that's an interesting question. I think you know once people uh, once even though you know those that hoped that Maloney might represent some form of change realize, as I think is very likely, that you know in fact um, nothing much will change under Maloney. Uh, what's what? What's left? I mean, there's no. There's at that point there will be no, uh, you know, no no new party at least for people to, to turn. Apathy is left, isn't it? I mean, essentially at that point, you know, I guess what was interesting as well about the Italian election just the collapse in turnout. You know, the fact that maybe one potential future for um, more than a few nation states actually is is among particular groups of voters who have clearly lost out over the last 20, 30 years is simply a disengagement from the political system, which in, which in, which in its own right is, you know, is a, is a deeply damaging and corrosive um, development in politics. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the politics of apathy probably don't get, don't get as much attention as, as, as they should do. Um, I suppose the one silver lining of sorts in Italy as well is that you do have a an electoral system that makes it pretty easy for new entrants and challengers to, you know, win and secure representation in the system. Now, you look at other countries, uh, the US, the UK, it, it, it's very difficult for alternatives to the status quo to really go anywhere, right? I mean, it's it's almost impossible. I mean, one of the ironies of one of the ironies of Brexit really is that it only came about because populists were able to use the European Parliament system to win representation and become a mainstream political force. Like that was the only way in which essentially people were able to mobilize, you know, an opposition to the status quo in Westminster. Um, Italy doesn't really have that that problem, right? You've got a an open electoral system. It's it's fairly straightforward to start a new party, to to mobilize. And so I suspect maybe the configurations of Italian politics five years from now, 10 years from now, like they did 10 years ago, will probably look radically different yet again from how they look today. You know, that, that's a possibility. I mean, I wouldn't overstate how easy it is to uh, for a new party to enter the Italian political system. I mean, I, um, I was, you know, directly or indirectly involved uh, with, uh, you know, at least two uh, small um, New anti-establishment parties that were created uh, in the run-up to the, to the recent elections, and uh, neither of them um, got you know, got past the three percent um, threshold. Uh, so we still have a three percent threshold, which uh, might sound low, but you're still talking millions of votes that you need to get to uh, to get into parliament. Uh, so that's um, that, that's quite a big challenge, and uh, and of course, you know, you have a complete media blackout when it comes to giving space to to, new, to these new parties, and so I, I mean. It's uh, actually, I mean, what I've learned <laughs> over the past uh, a few years is how hard it is actually for a, a new party that doesn't have you know, significant funding or doesn't have uh, an already pre-existing uh, 
uh, you know, personalities such as Beppe Grillo uh, was for the Five Star Movement. Just how hard it is to, you know, break into the fortress of the of the political system. But um, I mean, that's uh, that that's a possibility. I mean, uh, once uh, you know, once a lot of, uh, I mean, once people. Uh, yeah, I mean, one possibility is, uh, is 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 apathy. I mean, what happens when millions of people who are angry at the system don't have political representation anymore? Uh, historically, you know, um, that's been uh, you know a recipe for for disaster, um, uh, and and in fact, uh, usually uh, has ended up in violence and chaos and mayhem. Um, now, you know, I think on the one hand, that's today, that's an unlikely, um, uh, outcome, uh, especially in, in the West because voters have become so, uh, desensitized and, uh, and, and really, um, uh, apath- ap- apathetic as, as you said. And so I think in a way it's also a question of, uh, but that, in, that in turn, I think is damaging for the, for the system itself. You know, when you have a complete breakdown of feedback between ruling elites and the people, uh, I think it might work well for ruling elites for a while. But I think uh, in the long run, you need some you need some feedback between the two. When, when, if the two levels become completely disconnected, uh, then I think the ruling elites too end up made. You know, I think they they need some kind of feedback uh, as well, and then they're not getting it. I mean, look at. You know, look at how the disastrous situation of the energy crisis throughout Europe, and uh, you know, relative relative calm when it comes to uh, you know what's happening in the streets in terms of uh, uh, protests, demonstrations, civil disobedience. Really, not, we're not seeing much of that, you know. And so, I think uh, in a way, where we are also uh, facing, you know, what has been the you know, the kind of the neoliberal project in terms of uh, you know not not in not 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 in its e- economic aspect but in its political aspect as a project of depoliticization de-democratization it's almost been too successful <laughs> you know uh you know when, when people are so apathetic uh can can a system work yeah e- even if people don't protest but i mean um you know is that gonna is that going to lead to some kind of uh, even formal uh, rethinking of democratic politics? I mean, I think uh, clearly, you know, we're, we're heading in towards a situation which is increasingly um, you know, authoritarian. I mean, I think that's uh, that that's pretty obvious. I mean, uh, it's uh, a government that lacks any form of uh, mass support. You know, even if it got in there through the votes of a few people, is uh, is not a representative government. You know, and, uh, so I think. One one possibility is just the uh, not not mass protests, not violence, um, just the uh, hyper technocratization of uh, of 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 politics. You know, so a mass of apathetic people that are just trying to uh, to get by. Uh, you know, hooked to their cell phones and their computers. Uh, you know, and uh, and and this, you know, and, and a tiny elite that just manages everything for them. I mean, that's just one dystopian possibility. Uh, or if one wants to be more optimistic, you know, uh, there's um, then you know one could imagine that no, that's uh, that 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 you know there is an alternative, and the alternative is, uh, um, you know, in a country like Italy, for example, yes, a party getting successful, you know, growing, you know, once again, uh, you know, uh, managing to channel that anger. Uh, getting into parliament and working its way up uh, through through the system, uh, but uh, but that's that's uh, but, but again, you know, 
it's one thing we've learned it's how hard it is to challenge the status quo you know i think uh uh that 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 that's part of the problem you know and of course honestly i think a lot of people even those that are you know the angriest at the status quo and at the european union uh even the i think especially the most ardent euro skeptics uh, in italy are now asking themselves okay this is this is terrible you know we 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 shouldn't have got into the system it's uh, it's it's a complete disaster uh, we should leave as soon as possible uh but can that be done through uh democratic means uh can that be done through the ballot box i think a lot of people uh you know especially on the kind of uh you know more radicalized segments of the population are asking themselves that you know and uh uh and that that's you know when people start asking themselves that question it's uh it's it's never a good sign and uh it, it you know it could it could lead to very uh dangerous outcomes but i think it's uh it's important to know that i think that's what's on on the mind of a lot of people uh and i think that also explains the low turnout for these new anti-establishment parties that um that uh, attempted to get into parliament at the recent uh, at the recent elections people just weren't motivated enough they were like what what's the point you know yeah maybe we'll get above the three percent threshold and but you know this is not something that can be done through uh through democratic uh means and you know where that leads is uh is an open question and i do think i wonder a lot about generational change in politics and if you are part of gen z and you were born in 2000 2001 you've really known nothing other than than the events that we've been talking about you really you know you can't you can't really remember Italy before it was in the eurozone. You have grown up with the technocracy that you've seen in Italy and Greece and elsewhere. You probably, um, you know, you've been used to this constant churn and change and one populist party after another. And it's um, there's an open question hanging over Western politics, which is what kind of impact will all of all of that have on on Gen Z, not 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 only in Italy, but but across you know the US, Britain, uh, elsewhere. I mean, it is a generation that has seen some pretty remarkable political events um, already, and uh, and I wonder where that's going. Um, but um, we will continue to watch and witness Italian politics. It is the gift that keeps on giving uh, <laughs> for political analysts, and for those of us in. Uh, in Brexit, Britain, it, 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 it's been, uh, it's been, I think, for many people, a relief to be able to talk about some volatility and turbulence in a in another country, uh, at least for a week or two, as we watch the uh, the Georgia Maloney election. And I think many, many Brits, particularly on the Leave side of the of the debate, were probably looking at that with a sense of um, maybe a sense of recognition, a sense that uh, perhaps. They can relate to some of the frustrations driving uh, Italian voters, even into a form of politics that 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 doesn't seem very uh, very at home here in Britain. But um, Thomas, I wanted to thank you for your time, uh, thank you for your thoughts and um, your writing, and just to repeat myself at the beginning: uh, if you've not read Thomas's pieces on Unheard, please do and uh, engage with him on. Um, Twitter and Substack and uh, be ready for his book in January on the COVID consensus, um, which I'm looking forward to reading uh, very much. And uh, Thomas, thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking to you.